Our third scripture lesson this morning comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. Nonetheless, those who are in distress won't be exhausted. At an earlier time, God cursed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but later he glorified the way of the sea, the far side of the Jordan, and the Galilee of the nations. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in a pitch-dark land, light has dawned. You have made the nation great. You have increased its joy. They rejoiced before you as with joy at the harvest, as those who divide plunder rejoice. As on the day of Midian, you've shattered the yoke that burdened them, the staff on their shoulders and the rod of their oppressor. Because every boot of the thundering warriors and every garment rolled in blood will be burned, fuel for the fire. A child is born to us, a son is given to us, and authority will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be vast authority and endless peace for David's throne and for his kingdom, establishing and sustaining it with justice and righteousness now and forever. The zeal of the Lord of heavenly forces will do this. The word of God for the people of God. Author of life, we thank you for your word, and we ask that your spirit would be with us this morning to transform us in heart, mind, and soul. Amen. We are back once again this week in the book of Isaiah. There are a few reasons that I've been following the readings from the Hebrew Bible as the lectionary text to preach from. As I mentioned during Advent, we simply can't understand the ministry of Jesus apart from the ministry of the prophets, especially apart from his favored prophet Isaiah. So as we are in between the major seasons of the church that celebrate Jesus' birth and death and resurrection, it seems a fitting time to immerse ourselves in the text that shaped that life. In fact, in today's gospel lesson, we heard the author of Matthew cite this passage from Isaiah in connection with Jesus' ministry in the lands of Zebulun and Naphtali. Second, as is hopefully becoming clear, the prophets serve as a voice for God in times of great change and upheaval. I think it's safe to say that we are in times of great change and upheaval, not just here in the local church, but also in the global church and in society at large. In historic moments like now, the prophets remind us what faithful living looks like. Today's reading specifically casts a vision of what godly authority and leadership look like. 
one of the ways that scholars approach the book of Isaiah is by seeing the distinct thematic and literary features that separate the book into three different sections. Chapters 1 through 39 forming the first part, chapters 40 through 55 forming the second part, and chapters 56 through 66 forming part 3. Andrew T. Abernathy wrote a book called The Book of Isaiah and God's Kingdom, a thematic theological approach. In this book, he identifies three different lead agents who serve as the primary conduit for God's activity in each of the three parts of Isaiah. The way the lectionary is set up, we've moved backwards through these different parts so that in Advent, we heard from the messenger as the lead agent who proclaimed in chapter 65 a new heavens and a new earth. Then last week in chapter 49, we heard about a servant as the lead agent who was called to be a light to the nations. Now this week, as we work our way backwards through Isaiah, we come to chapter 9 where we hear about the Davidic ruler as the lead agent on whom authority will rest. If you were in either our Bible study on 1st or 2nd Kings last year or on Hosea this fall, you know that rulers in Judah and Israel don't have a great track record when it comes to behaving in godly ways. Since all these books are dealing with roughly the same time period, the same is true of the kings here in Isaiah. If you recall the story of Emmanuel from Christmas Eve, you'll remember that just a few chapters before today's reading, Isaiah came to the king, Ahaz, offering to give Ahaz a sign of support from God. But Ahaz spurned that offer choosing instead to trust in political alliances and military might. And in between that reading and this one are oracles of destruction as a consequence upon Judah for the disobedience of their king. At one point in chapter 8, the prophet declares, And behold, there will be affliction and darkness without daybreak, distress and gloom without dawn, Surely it will be without daybreak to the one distressed by it. In other words, Judah is in a darkness that they cannot see a way out of. When they rely on themselves, there is no hope to strengthen them. Our readings this morning begin by speaking about the curse that God laid on the lands of Zebulon and Naphtali. This curse was that they had been conquered by the Assyrian army. They had been incorporated into a foreign empire under the yoke of violent, oppressive rulers. But into this darkness, the prophet now speaks light. He speaks of a ruler who will glorify those who have been subjugated. He speaks of a ruler who will break the yoke of God's people. He speaks of a ruler who will bring restoration and emancipation. So it would be easy for Isaiah to proclaim a king who crushes his enemies under heel, who gets revenge for the wrongs done to his people. 
that is certainly what the way of the world would expect. And yet, that's not the kind of king that Isaiah proclaims. Instead, Isaiah returns to the day of Midian, a story about Gideon and about God's power. Gideon was called in a time when his people were also crushed under the yoke of violent oppression. The Lord sends a messenger to seek out Gideon who will liberate his people. And Gideon questions God's choice. He objects to God's messenger and says, But I am weak. I'm the youngest member of the weakest clan in our tribe. And so he puts the messenger to a test and demands to give an offering to God to prove that what the messenger says is truly of God. When God's messenger then accepts the offering and displays the power of God, Gideon is struck with fear. But the messenger commands him to be at peace, to not be afraid. And so Gideon, the unlikely warrior chosen by God, builds an altar called the Lord Makes Peace. Now when the time comes for Gideon to free his people from the Midianites, there are 32,000 soldiers who come to his call. God sends home all those who are scared, leaving 10,000. Even this number is too high, and so God sends home all but 300. God didn't want there to be any question as to whose power would accomplish this victory, and so God leaves Gideon with an army that could not win through military strength. Then, in the night, the Lord sent Gideon with his tiny army to scatter the enemy that swarmed over the land like locusts. As Gideon and his troops blew their trumpets and smashed jars, the Lord sent a spirit of fear and confusion into the enemy, causing them to flee from the land without Gideon having to raise a single sword in battle. As I said already, the leaders of Judah and Israel don't have a great track record of behaving in godly ways, and the turn for Gideon comes unusually fast. Logan Meal Ituri describes what happens next by writing, But then they go beyond the orders they are given and pursue the Midianites without mercy. God is no longer before them, but behind them, silent, right there at the camp they are told to take and keep. A healthy fear of the Lord leaves Gideon, and he replaces it with a hearty dose of vengeance and vainglory. God had worked so hard to make sure that there was no way that anyone else could take credit for the work that God did. But Gideon seized the opportunity to make a name for himself. Now Gideon at least has the sense to turn down the request from the people to become king, telling them instead that the Lord will rule over them. But he has also led the people astray once again by his pursuit of vengeance that leads him not just to hunt down those who had oppressed them, but to also slaughter innocent bystanders who got in his way. 
Now back to Isaiah. As Isaiah envisions the restoration of God's people, he sees the day of Midian, that moment when God's power was at work to free the people before Gideon takes matters into his own hands. He sees a liberator who not only removes the yoke from his own people, but ends the cycle of violence that haunts humanity. Isaiah declares, every boot of the thundering warriors and every garment rolled in blood will be burned, fuel for the fire. Just as Isaiah has already declared that every weapon shall be turned into farm tools, he now declares that every item of war will perish. Because under the rule of the Lord, nations shall not learn war anymore. The one on whom authority is given is the one who manages to make reversal without revenge. Just as Gideon made an altar to the Lord who makes peace, Isaiah now names the ruler of liberation as the prince of peace. Finally, Isaiah declares that the prince of peace, the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the eternal father, will establish and sustain justice and righteousness now and forever. And you may wonder, how does one establish justice without punishment? How can the righteous suffer the unrighteous to exist without retribution? But that is the vision of the Lord, liberation for all people, redemption for every one of God's broken, suffering children. In his book, Executing Grace, which calls for the abolition of the death penalty, Shane Claiborne addresses questions like these. Near the end of the book, he writes, as prominent black intellectual and public theologian Cornel West has said, justice is what love looks like in public. And I'll add for our purposes, restorative justice is what forgiveness looks like in public. Forgiveness is at the heart of God, in so much as we forgive, we shall be forgiven, Jesus said. Forgiveness heals the world, it also heals our own hearts. It frees us from the poison of resentment. I heard once that when we refuse to forgive someone, it's like eating poison and hoping that someone else will die. We think that by not forgiving, we are hurting the other person but we end up stalling our own healing. Or, to condense that thought down, God's justice is not about revenge or retribution. God's justice is about making whole all those who are injured. So what does this oracle from Isaiah teach us about authority? First, that the source of all authority is God. When the leaders of God's people fail to act with humble and contrite hearts, they lead the people astray. When Gideon is called, he questions his own strength and relies only on that strength which comes from the Lord. When he becomes arrogant, he leads the people into faithlessness. When Ahaz refused to seek the help of the Lord, he led his people into destruction. 
It is impossible to be a godly leader without giving all thanks to God. Second, that godly authority doesn't reside in the sword, but in the salve. God's justice creates reversal without giving in to our desire for revenge. God knows that more harm doesn't remove the harm we have experienced. It only leaves more harmed people in the world. So how does this inform our understanding of Jesus? Even though Christ is of one nature with the Godhead, we still see him withdrawing in prayer throughout his life. In moments of trial or fear, Jesus is in conversation with the other members of the Trinity. And when those who follow Jesus are tested, his constant instruction is to keep loyal to God. As for justice, we see in today's gospel lesson that Jesus went throughout the land curing every disease and sickness among the people. Elsewhere, we see his we see Jesus rebuke his disciples for wanting to call down fire on those who did not welcome them. We see him rebuke his disciple who draws a sword to defend him, stating that those who live by the sword will perish like the sword. Even at the point of his own death, Jesus hangs from the cross, wishing forgiveness on those who had put him there. In Jesus Christ, we see the perfect embodiment of the kind of ruler that Isaiah envisioned. But we are all called to strive for such perfection. We all have the capacity to trust God so completely that our own egos melt away. We all have the capacity to let the love of God transform our hearts so that we seek to return love to those who hate us, healing to those who harm us, wholeness to those who have broken us. Amen. Would you please pray with me? God, you are our sovereign. You are our redeemer and our liberator. And you are the sovereign redeemer and liberator of those we think are our enemies. Make us instruments of your perfect love. Grant us the courage to trust you in every moment. Amen.